my father was creating these amazing stories and he went into an editor's office and said, I need help with a graphic designer. And she says, stay here, wait a half an hour. This interesting guy is coming. And the guy walks in with white straight hair who didn't talk much and he was introduced to Andy Warhol. What's going on everybody and welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. I'm your host, Cameron Steiner, and I'm joined by my co-host and brother, Ryan. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. That's right. And as always, please subscribe and leave a review for us. It truly helps. We hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. It's not very often that you can accredit somebody with keeping heritage alive. Today, you'll get to hear from John Edelman, who we can attribute to doing just that. Formerly CEO of Design Within Reach, John and his business partner are reviving Heller Inc., a brand that since 1971 has worked with some of the most influential designers like Massimo Vignelli, Mario Bellini, and Frank Gehry, just to name a few. John's a big believer in that modern is forever, which has truly helped pave the way for his success in the business world. But John didn't just randomly fall into the world of design and furniture. It actually all started with his grandparents and parents who had eyes for great design and courageous talent. They even hired a graphic designer back in the day who John describes as a man with white straight hair who didn't talk too much. And if you know anything about art, you could probably guess who we're talking about. All these experiences in John's life have led him to be a collector of many, many things. Of course, starting out with furniture, moving into watches, cars, vintage TVs and radios, you name it. Not only that, but John uses every single thing in every one of his collections. Today, we're keeping it day one, talking about the collections that got him to where he is today. So without further ado, John Edelman for Collector's Gene Radio. John, what an absolute pleasure to have you on Collector's Gene Radio today. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Glad to hear it. Um, we have quite a bit to talk about today because you're like me in a lot of senses. We collect things across multiple categories, but I kind of think it's important for us to start where everything really began, design, leather, art, furniture. Um, you know, your your family has quite the history here. And from what I understand, their their dinner parties didn't necessarily include the next door neighbor. <laughs> so <laughs> We didn't uh, know who the neighbors were. Yeah. So if you wouldn't mind getting everybody acclimated with day one and the previous generations of your family, I think that will paint the picture perfectly. Yeah, well, I tell you, it's an interesting story because my parents, my, all my grandparents were born in Russia and uh, came to this country with, with very little. And my, my grandfather started a small leather business by a chance encounter with a guy in the Empire State Building that was selling reptile skins. And he said, I'll, I'll take these reptile skins, but I need 30 days to pay. So he, the guy said yes, and he started you know, the original family business, which was filming Joff. My father and mother met, and I'll just tell it quickly, in a liberal arts college called Sarah Lawrence College. Okay. And my father was the first man to ever go there. He, and he, he left his kosher Bronx upbringing to go to the Navy, and then the Navy paid his way to go to college. And, he, and his uncle, who was a composer, said, this is the time you can change your life, do something different. And my dad it, did. He studied acting at Sarah Lawrence. Uh, my mother was a social worker, and they graduated, and three days later, they uh, got married. And then within four years, they had their first three children. Now, 
after those first four years, my father was a broke actor and my mother was a poor social worker. And so they needed to change gears. So they joined my grandfather's business. And this is where things got interesting. My grandfather, a tiny little business selling snakeskins. And my father was an actor. My mother was a social worker. They, they, they didn't know the business world, but they knew promotion. And very quickly, uh, they learned the business. And my father was creating these amazing stories. And he went into an editor's office and said, I need help with a graphic designer. And she says, stay here. Wait a half an hour. This interesting guy is coming. And the guy walks in with white straight hair who didn't talk much. And he was introduced to Andy Warhol. So <laughs> in the beginning, it was Andy Warhol and doing all the graphic design for my grandparents' business, which was Fleming Joff. And I think that launched my parents into the world of design and opened up a whole new world there. They went to Italy and my father fell in love with a guy named Fornasetti, who does the most amazing plates and they're you sure. know, super collectible. And the Christmas gift for Fleming Joff was uh, these custom plates representing the leather in, in interesting ways. And Ogden Nash wrote the prose on the plates. And, uh, and my parents became collectors. They went from my dad, especially from a Bronx, you know, moderate background to, to developing an eye. And he, they had a tannery in St. Louis. And when they were waiting for samples, he'd go antiquing and they found, uh, Tiffany lamps, you know, for $50, $25 that, you know, in their estate ended up, you know, selling for, for real money. At, uh, at Sotheby's and Christie's and those kinds of things. So the, the house where I grew up, I was, the, I was six of six kids, was this world of representing the, the passions of two collectors, my mother and father. But as a kid growing up, you have no clue what's going on. Seeing old master's paintings next to Tiffany lamps, next to a Warhol, next to uh, floss lights was normal. And I think I was infused with some of that without knowing what it was. Um, so that, that's really, if you want to know day one, it, it was really the inspiration by my parents and their friends that taught me that collecting is even possible, right? Sure. And we'll get into, you know, how your career began and, and when you started collecting. But do you feel like growing up around those things kind of just made you a natural collector and, and probably at, at some point just... uh following in the family footsteps, for, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean, probably without knowing it. It also gave me courage. And, and to be a collector, you must have courage. You have, to, you have to buy something without a place to put it. You have to, 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 to develop a passion for something, and then the rules don't apply anymore uh, about you know, doing the right thing or doing the, the – uh, my father bought a car in 1971. Uh, when he had first made his first kind of money, it was a 1971 Mercedes 280 SE 3.5 convertible, triple had black. Comeback recently, yeah, it was a fourteen thousand dollar car, which was insane <laughs> in '71. I think a Ford Thunderbird was, you know, fifteen hundred dollars um, or twenty five hundred dollars. He he didn't buy it because it was going to go up in value. He bought it because he loved it. And that car today is a six hundred or seven hundred thousand dollar car. Um, and there's I I ended up buying it back. There's a whole story there, but. You know, he taught me that you don't buy things to, to to watch them go up in value. You buy them because you love them. And then, you know, sometimes they go up in value. It's, it's, a, it's a bonus, but it's not the reason. Right. And, you know, if a lot of times you have a good eye for something, you can pretty much guarantee that things will go up in value. Yeah, I guess so. But I think it can't be the – for me personally, I like getting a value, 
but I buy things because I love them, not because I'm it, it's uh, I'm hoping for them to take a spike, you know, a COVID spike or whatever it's going to be. Yeah, I think that that's a, if you do it that way, I think it takes the fun out of it. Absolutely, you're, you're you end up searching for the wrong thing. Yeah, I think you have to develop something that you love and, and become an expert. Learn. It's how I learned about furniture and everything was through collecting. I, you know, it's it's um it's it's nurturing a passion versus studying a book. Most definitely. So tell us about how your career kind of began and then at what point you started collecting. I started off in the shoe business with my oldest brother, Sam. He's world famous now as a shoe designer, Sam Edelman Shoes. And the first company he had uh, when I came of age was a company called Sam and Libby. I graduated from college on a Saturday. I flew to Brazil Sunday to learn shoemaking. (laughs) And I worked there for seven years. And that's where my career started. And those days, I had a nice watch my father gave me, but I was not a collector. And then when I transitioned from Sam and Libby to join the family business, which was uh, Edelman Leather, I didn't know the furniture world. My parents had an amazing friend uh, named Alvin Friedman Keene, Dr. Alvin Friedman Keene, who was the collector's collector. He, from Narville tusks to old master's paintings to Mies van der Rohe furniture to, uh, I think, his collection of of duck decoys had a, was on the cover of the of the of the Christie's catalog, and, and I met my wife at the same time, and he used to go to the New York City flea markets on Twenty Sixth Street every weekend, and we were living in the city, and he said, "Why don't you come along?" And my wife and I fell in love there, but also got addicted to the concept, and that's where I learned about modern furniture. I didn't go to the flea markets to shop modern, but. It was like the power came over us. We just fell in love with it to the point where we were renting rider trucks on 11th Avenue to bring home our, our finds and, and keeping them. You know, I ended up joining Edelman Leather, so I had a warehouse space to keep everything. And, and I got so obsessive that the, the pickers that would go to the show their wares in New York would stop by my office in Connecticut on the way to the city, give me first look. <laughs> and I'd buy sometimes, you know, 150 Saranen chairs, you know, from an office that closed down for t- Ten dollars each, and I'd warehouse them and <laughs> and do all crazy stuff. But you know, I didn't know about furniture, and becoming an expert in modern through collecting let me go into a Gensler office and understand what they were talking about when they said what well, leather is right for a Mies van der Rohe type piece or for Saarinen or for Eames. I knew what to say, and eventually, I got us graded into Herman Miller with our leather—the first leather ever that was ever graded into Herman Miller. And when I went there, I knew as much about Miller and the products as they did. Probably more. Sometimes more. I knew when they changed from four casters to five casters, you know, with with the the new uh, Bithman requirements. I knew the inspiration for Charles and Ray. I knew about Cranbrook. I knew all that stuff because to be a a good collector, you have to know the details. And to a certain extent, God is in the details. And in in the other sense, you know, running a business, you have to be a, a good salesman too. Yes, and he has to be authentic. And right. you know, I always say I, I've never sold anything in my life. I found out what people wanted, and then given it to them. Um, it's hard to know what people want if you don't know what's possible, and the origins. And yeah, it was it was a huge collecting. Definitely made me a, you know help my, with my success in business. I think without that, as you call it, collector's gene, uh, it, it, I wouldn't have gotten where where, where I ended up. So you were collecting a lot of modern furniture back then, and and you mentioned that 
didn't necessarily know much about it, but of course you're buying what you like. As time went on and you keep going to these flea markets or whatnot, were you after specific pieces, specific designers, all that sort of stuff? Yes, I got obsessive. So it started off with everything. And then I fell for, a sh- I also have like short-term passions, unfortunately. I fell in love with Haley Wakefield for a while. Haley Wakefield didn't cut it long-term. And then I bought this chair at the flea market that was like a Danish modern recliner. No tags on it, nothing. And I fell in love with it. And then by chance, six months later, I found another one. Wow. And so I had these two chairs in my house forever. I covered them in animal leather. They were like a Danish modern recliner, which was unbelievable. And we did it in the best Edelman leather, which was uh, Luke's calf. And then I was at the Armory show. This must be 15 years later. And I found uh, this great um, metal framed leather chair uh, designed and, and produced by this guy named Milo Boffman. And I learned that the recliners were also Milo Boffman. I hadn't known until then. And I became arguably the world's largest collector of Milo Boffman furniture. And when I got to Design Within Reach, I started waking up at five in the morning and calling the family. I found a, a nephew in Colorado. And then I found Thayer Cog in the original factory and I made friends with them. And we relaunched Milo Boffman. We were the first ones. It eventually got, uh, more people got involved later with the factory. Kind of a, a negative story for me, but it was that passion that actually brought back Milo Boffman. So yeah, I, 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 mean, I did a hundred different things. I started, you know, obsessively collecting. I got in, uh, obsessed with 1950s portable televisions and the whole design. When my wife and I had a house in the Hamptons, uh, when we first met, it was a tiny little house and it, it came with this 1940s vintage stove and that's really all that was in the house. And so we decorated every inch of the house with flea market finds, literally nothing new from the melamine plates to the 1950s portable televisions, to the furniture, to everything was this. Melamine plates are the best. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Bakelite uh, silverware. But it was, it was from everything from roadside stands to the, to the flea market. But yeah, I got Model 2001 Weltron radios were a thing. I probably have 50 of those. Um, so yeah, so I forget what the question was. But yes, it's, it's easy to go down a rabbit hole. And uh, if you're obsessive and have part of a warehouse space, you can buy a lot. When it comes to, to furniture, are, are you still collecting a lot of the same pieces today that you were back then? I don't collect furniture anymore. My time at Design Within Reach, where you do it for a living, took away a lot of my passion for collecting. And I got to the next stage, which is even cooler than collecting, which is helping people create. You know, I'm not a designer, but I would nurture designers. I started collecting, at that time, more watches and things. And, and smaller pieces. Also, once you have a family and start building a home and, and having it like making a beautiful home, there's no longer a place to put things. And I kind right. of like, <laughs> I, I had to shift gears. The storage uh, and, room is now nurseries. Yeah, of course. And then I got into cars. I moved away from furniture, and, and, but I, I didn't stop learning about furniture, but it was more about uh, hopefully creating the next generation of modern. So how, how did you come to join Design Within Reach? Because you're, you're with the family business at Edelman Leather. And again, it's not always common to make your passion, your career. Um, and, and usually when you do, it's on a small scale, but you joined a massive company. Yeah. We had sold Edelman Leather to Knoll. And I was ending my contract with Knoll for the, uh, my second year. So I'd 
You know, I had Edelman Leather graded into Herman Miller. I had uh, sold a company to Noel. So I actually, without knowing it, was an expert in those types of companies. And I had a retail background from the shoe business. And randomly, I was, I'm a member of a group called Young Presidents Organization. And I was standing online to go to a Harlem Globetrotters game because take the kids, because <laughs> my friend was a president of the Globetrotters. And I bumped into a guy, we started this conversation. It turns out he was friendly with an investor in New York that had just acquired the bulk of Design Within Reach and needed help. Now, I had promised my wife I was taking six months off and being a better father and husband and helping with her business. And I went to the city to meet this guy that had, you know, who had acquired uh, the company. And instead of taking uh, six months off, I took six days off. John McPhee and I, my business partner, the New York Times article came out about us buying the company uh, before we even started. So six days off, Mexican family trip, and then started in January 4th with Design Within Reach. It happened very, very quickly. Um, all decisions were made. I, we invested a sizable amount of money into it with very little due diligence, um, and we, uh, we went to work. So it was, it was really random. My experience with Design Within Reach was I had my leather in there through Herman Miller, and I used to go in there and shop just to talk about design uh, and the pieces with the employees who were really experts. So it was, it was kind of a, a strange way to enter, but uh, I think that's how it should happen. It was never a plan, but collecting leather, shoes, uh, picking a great business partner, John McPhee, all led to kind of uh, taking over and, and being successful at Design Within Reach. Did anyone from uh, your family stay at Edelman Leather when you sold it? No, no one did. My parents left. Uh, they were getting old is one of the reasons we had to sell the company. My parents, uh, I knew we we're going to need a lot of care. My father had lost his leg. And in the shoe business, I had learned Portuguese in Brazil. And I used to talk to all the guys in the warehouse when I was sorting hides. And, you know, I, I, I can say this with a straight face. I, I called a family meeting and said there was going to be a recession because the Brazilian guys were all buying these expensive houses they couldn't afford. And <laughs> we, we sold Edelman Leather. We closed uh, October 1st, 2007, literally days and weeks before the, the Great Recession. So uh, no one stayed. And, and no one, you know, running a family business is one of the great experiences in life. It's really difficult. It's not usually possible to transfer that passion into working for somebody else. You know, we, we became part of a publicly traded company, which is night and day from working with your mother and father and my sister when we first started um, and, and, and building a business like that. So I, uh, it, it wouldn't have been the right place for anybody. Understandable. So as a, as a furniture collector, you know, whether it's past or present, what is your opinion on the recent merger of two of the biggest furniture companies now known as Miller Knoll? I'm hopeful. You know, like when Charles and Ray Eames won the design contest at the MoMA with the chair of the future, when the molded plywood, and George Nelson was design director, and Bloomingdale said they would retail the furniture, and Herman Miller said they would produce it. That was like a magical moment. The whole Cranbrook uh, influence and Herm Miller was the purveyor of the next generation of modern. Knoll had, you know, Florence Knoll, who went to Cranbrook and said, there's modern buildings. 
and nothing to put in them. So let's do that. And they hired Jens Rism and Saarinen and all these amazing things. Can that happen today? I don't know. Like I, I really, really, really hope that they are still completely and totally in love with the concept of modern because modern is forever. And they have everything it takes to launch designers and launch product because they have Miller and Knoll. They have Design Within Reach. They have Hay. They're international. They can, you know, they, they can do whatever they want. Will they stay true to modern? Will there be a constant passion to create the next iconic pieces, to find the next iconic designers? They certainly have the power. They have a lot of knowledgeable people, and I think they'll do it. I mean, they are the best bet. So I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm really hopeful. Um, it will not be easy because they're not making family decisions. Uh, they're making publicly traded company decisions, which, of which they don't have a choice, which is all fine and dandy. Um, but they, they need to keep telling the stories and keep with all their heart and soul searching for the next great pieces. Yeah, I guess you really just have to hope that there's team players on both sides who do really care about this stuff. And obviously, when it comes to being a publicly traded company, as you mentioned, you have other people to report to now. You have a ticker symbol, and it's not just about, you know, unfortunately, always making great product. It's a lot of times financial decisions. Yeah, but that should be one of the same. You know, it should. A great, it should, great yes. product should be a... A uh, great product should be a, a financial decision that, that is for the long term. So I'm sure I'm, – I'm, I'm very hopeful. I'm, I'm positive. Uh, but people will have to fight. And, you know, no extra bows and whistles and no temporary stuff. You got to think long term. Absolutely. So back to furniture collecting. You know, when it, when it comes to collecting anything, obviously – condition is very important and usually pricing reflects that. But is there some leniency when it comes to furniture for things like stains or tears for an asset class of this sort? Yeah, that's, you know, that's when, the coolest part. Like that's the cool so so great quality things wear in. Cheap things wear out. So you learn the term patina. Sure. Patina is valuable in automobiles. Patina is really valuable in watches. And it's also really valuable in furniture. And you know, if you find, you know, something from Mies van der Rohe and the leather disc is that it's it's cracked and aged and gorgeous. To me, that's worth more. And, and the market says it's worth a lot. I think things that have been restored oftentimes become pedestrian and available to anyone. Yet something with true patina that has someone used it and put love into it and 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 preserved it. I think that's always more valuable, and, and and it's the it's the ultimate find, right? Right. It's always exciting finding something in yeah great condition or with with great even patina. Exactly. I mean, look, look at the trading people do in vintage Levi's five hundred ones, and they they rate the whiskers and they rate you know where the hole is, and it's, it's the great things that wear in should be celebrated, and, and they are, they totally are. So you had mentioned that a lot of the furniture that you bought. A long time ago at the flea markets and whatnot, you ended up reupholstering in, in your family's leather. Was was that kind of a hard decision to make? Did you ever feel like you were maybe taking away some of the originality? Obviously, when it comes to things like cars and watches and you know replacing things or correcting things maybe 
So I'll tell you something, and I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. There's never anything wrong with putting, and I don't own the company, right? This is owned by Nolan Miller. Edelman Leather has been out of my life for a long time. But it was the best leather in the world. And when you put that on a piece of furniture, you, you said, okay, you're going to last now for the next 100 years. And you celebrate every inch of the design. And uh, I, know, I, think it's, I think I never felt bad about it at all. And it, I wouldn't have done it if it was in great condition. But I would buy, I have two chairs in my house now. They're these gorgeous 1950 swivel chairs. Uh, I bought them for $15 each. They were ripped. And I put, at the time, I remember buying Dangia Mohair. And they're still in my house. This is, I've been married for 24 years. This is 26 years ago. And they're, they're even better. I have a, uh, an Eames Lounge and Ottoman in Edelman Leather that, you know, uh, give it to my grandkids. I think, I think creating something that has longevity and becomes heirloom quality augments the value, augments the vision. Um, I think that if the designers were alive and saw me do it, they would applaud me, I think, not, not think poorly of it. So, so I never felt poorly about that. And if things had the right patina, you wouldn't reupholster them anyway. Right. Yeah. I've definitely seen some photos of, of you know, different pieces of furniture that you've posted or, um, you know, sent out for different interviews. And it definitely looks pretty, pretty awesome when you see, you know, some of these old furniture pieces and then they're upholstered in, in different beautiful leathers and all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm with you there. My father had, and mother had this painting by Andy Warhol. And it was like a classic phone chair, super simple. It said, this is the chair. Then it had this wild thing with snakes and reptiles coming off it. It said, this is the chair in Edelman Leather. And uh, that was their vision <laughs> way back when. But uh, no, I think, yeah, I think if you, as long as you're always respectful, I think you're doing the right thing. Do you ever think back to how ahead of the times your, your parents were with recognizing talent like Warhol and you know, subsequently, do you ever feel like that kind of shaped the way that you viewed things? Sure. I mean, they were so open-minded for their generation. You know, they had friends that were almost all gay and, and that was unheard of in the sixties and, and times like that, where they grew up and, and all that. And they loved the design scene and they were just open to different kinds of people and different kinds of ideas. And I think that left me with almost no choice, but to be the same way. And to be excited by people that had different views or creatives or nonconformists. And that's where great things get hatched, right? It's not going to happen usually in a boardroom. It's going to happen from somebody that's different that people believe in. If you finance a talented person and let them explore, you can get great things. So I think that's what they did. And I think through osmosis, I got some of that. That's great. So you also mentioned that you know, you keep a lot of the furniture that you collected over the years in your home and you've reupholstered them, you've, you've used them. Is there anything that, that you've ever bought that you just said, hey, this is going to sit in storage. I do not want to touch this. Maybe it was something super rare, just something objectively beautiful. Or does everything get used? Everything gets used. I, I made a decision about 10 years ago to, I, I held a charity auction for DIFA, the Design Industry Foundation for Fighting AIDS. And I sold everything I wasn't using and gave the money to, to fight AIDS and, and help people with AIDS. I, I don't, and I, even with cars, the same thing, anything I wasn't using, anything that wasn't going to be like jumping and go, um, I sold. I, I don't believe in that. I try to wear, I have, the, I have the watches. I try to wear a different watch every week. 
and, and use them. That's a big transition. You know, I, I don't want anything in a safe. I don't want anything on a pedestal. So I ended up buying that Mercedes back that my parents bought in 71. Yeah, I want to hear about that. So it's, I'll, I'll try to tell it quicker, but they bought the car in 71 when they had money. My father lost money by 1981 and had to sell the car. They sold the car for 40000 The car they bought for 14000 30 years later, we go to sell Edelman Leather, and my friends, uh, Boston Fellows, they sent me a note, said, oh, we saw this car on eBay. I think it might resonate with you. And the first line of the eBay auction was, I bought this car from a Hyde dealer in 1981 in Connecticut. Oh, like, wow. oh my goodness. So I bought the car sight unseen. Did you get chills? Oh, yeah. I mean, and we, had, we were having the going away party for, for our sales force on a Thursday night. The car arrived Thursday, halfway through the sales, through the uh, party. I had everybody come to the front of the house. My mother and father come to the front of the house. And I had the car driven down the driveway. And I mean, there wasn't a dry eye. And that's about a car, right? Like, who cares? It was about a car. And then I spent four years having the car meticulously, what they call a rotisserie restoration, where they, they put it on a rotisserie and blow every part off the car and then restore every nut and every bolt and put it back together. And, you ha- and what we had was one of the finest uh, examples of a 1971 280 SE 3.5 in the world. Amazing. And I was scared to drive it. And that, that, that kind of bummed me out. Like it was so valuable, I was uncomfortable driving it. And then one day a guy came over to help me like clean the stuff and work on the cars. And he turned the car on and he heard a drip and then flame shot out of the motor and the drip wouldn't stop and the car burned to the ground. Oh my goodness. And I thought to myself, well, why was I scared to drive it? You know, like, it doesn't even exist anymore over something completely random. And I felt so silly for that, right? Like I had this amazing thing that should be used. And I stopped I stopped putting things in glass boxes and, and just started using them. So, On the other hand, you potentially saved yourself from having an issue while driving it too. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think I could have jumped out, <laughs> but no question. That was, you know, everything works out for a reason, right? But Yeah, but, uh, yeah exactly. But well, that, that's a pretty – emotional story i mean it's definitely hard not to to get emotional about that and you know you just think about other things that you know your family left left behind and how amazing it is that you just had somebody looking out for this stuff and thought of you when they saw it yeah and and just lovely and and because you share a path like when you're a collector so scott boss and craig fellows they're really good friends of mine they live in a philip johnson house in connecticut and they're mercedes guys so we didn't just bond about furniture because nobody, most people don't have a passion for one thing. I would say people that are passionate are passionate about many things. So here are two men that are amazing furniture designers. They just did a sit-stand desk for Herman Miller, which I think is genius. But they love Mercedes as well. And so we talk about that stuff. And that's how life works. And then they saw something I would like and they sent it to me and I would send them or other people things. You develop this secondary community um, outside of your profession, which always kind of links back in, you go back and forth, and uh, and creates you know opportunities for everybody. It's it's kind of thrilling. Those guys are very special to me, and um, that was that was a ridiculously cool thing they did. Yeah, that that's pretty incredible. Kind of hard to beat. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I, I'm never paying back. <laughs> yeah. So 
you know, I think I think by now everybody knows that cars and watches are super important to you, and I think we'll definitely have to have another convo to chat chat about that. But just to give the listeners, I guess, something to hold on to until then, what watch are you wearing today, and what car from your collection would you pair it with? Ooh, okay, that's pretty cool. And my collection is very drivable now, right? So I'm wearing. I'm gonna tell the truth. I'm just I'm wearing a really cool Seiko uh, called the Turtle. I, I'm in I'm in love with a green uh, military strap, and the Turtle has this beautiful pusher that they build the watch around on the lower right side. It's not centered, and the watch makes me super happy. It's very distinct. And yeah, and it's a '70s watch, and so I have a a 1974 Chevy Blazer uh, convertible, full full convertible. And uh, it's, I would say it's perfect for that car. That's a great pairing. But what would you say it is about watches, cars, art, furniture, that you can be a gentleman like yourself and, and really collect all of them, but somehow they can all relate to each other, right? You know, you find a lot of people who maybe collect some some random things. Like, you know, for example, if you just collected these old TVs and radios, I wouldn't necessarily think that you're a car collector, watch collector, furniture collector. But there's like those four or five categories that really seem to all tie into each other. And do you think it's it's a design thing or? It's totally a design thing. And it was, your technology is separate. Technology is weird because it's temporary. Everything else is permanent. It's an aesthetic. I mean, who doesn't look at a classic Vespa or a Volkswagen bus or a Mini? And smile, right? Those are iconic designs. Who doesn't really love an Eames Lounge and Ottoman uh, or a Rolex Daytona and or a Porsche 911? There, there are certain things that I, I'm intrigued by the for, foreverness of the design. And that's what turns me on. So it can be in, in anything. It can be in architecture. You know, I don't collect houses. But I, I can understand the language of design of a house that relates to the possessions that I own. As when they go in, they hold their own in the, in the space. Every item I mentioned, you can put in a white box by itself, and it's gorgeous. It doesn't need to be uh, styled or merchandised and things like that. They all hold their own. And those kind of items in the world are very rare. Right, and that's uh, I'm not a fan of modern furniture. Exactly. And I'm not a fan of contemporary or, or even a lot of modern art. It's just not my thing. I'm not, I, I never understand what's forever. It's just that I don't understand it, but doesn't mean it's not right. I don't like contemporary furniture. I think it's contemporary to me. It's temporary. Um, architecture, it doesn't have to be modern. Modern architecture is extremely difficult to achieve, the, 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 to be real modern. But who doesn't love a great barn? And a great barn can house all those things I mentioned, right? Because it's got this it's timeless design. I mean, the, the glass house is so iconic because it's a glass house. There's nothing to it. The simplicity and the, the uh, transportability of the design is kind of unbelievable. You take the glass house and drop it in Alaska or Hawaii, and it fits in equally in each place. You can't say that about most design. Right. And I, I think that's kind of the best thing about modern furniture is that it is past, present, and future, and it really can work anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. I was, I was just in South France, and my wife and I stayed a couple of nights at this, this little chateau, and 
the rooms were outfitted, you know, old herringbone, you know, brought down to the original stained floors, which were incredible. The dressers, uh, or I guess wardrobes were these old Louis Vuitton trunks, which was amazing. But then you go, then you go into the common area and they have all these other, you know, Louis Vuitton trunks kind of scattered around and they have this super modern chrome lounge chair. And I just thought it was the coolest mix of, yeah. of furniture and, and goods to, to have in, a, in, a, in one building. I, I knew that from, my, from growing up, and then I didn't see it in the United States. Then the second you start traveling in Europe, you see that eclectic mix, just like that, a, a classic armoire with maybe a Mies van der Rohe chair next to it, you know? And you're Amazing. like, wow, yeah, that's, that's cool. Both of those things are forever. Right. It's objectively cool. You can't not appreciate it. Right. You don't have to love, you know, classic French architecture, but it goes forever. You, and you go, you're in Italy and you're in this like plastered wall with this and that that you see mixed with an, uh, an oriental rug mixed with uh, 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 an Ingvald Ottoman. And you're like, wow, yeah, these things are all forever. And it's rare. I think through technology today and through Pinterest, I think people are opening their eyes to being more eclectic. But eclectic's hard. It's like really hard. Eclectic without passion or without a reason looks silly sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, got to have an eye for it. And I think it's also, like you said, the courage and the confidence level too, right? Yeah. And the love. If you could put, and the love, if you could put an Eames lounge chair, like you said, in an old barn uh, with old master's paintings hanging around, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty damn cool. <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to Alligator Farm where I grew up. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> so, Heller Inc. is is where you're at now. You're back in furniture, ready to make another yeah. splash. Um, again, a, 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 another brand with a great design history, just like the products from DWR. How how, how did you come to join Heller after your your stint at DWR? Yeah, I took some time off, which was great. I got my head clear, and I wanted to go back to my roots of business. And and I've learned. You know, it's hard making shoes. You make them overseas. It takes forever. You have four times a year. The styles change and et cetera, et cetera. Fashion is in, oftentimes quite temporary. To leather, which was forever. Great quality leather. Elm leather will last forever. We did iconic colors. And I really loved that business. And then design within reach was great, but retail is really hard and a little bit overwhelming at times. So Heller was this amazing company making modern furniture. Definition of modern is aesthetically beautiful, highly functional, and no ego in the design, right? So no uh, bows and things like that, right? Nothing for the designer. This has to be beautiful and function. And then I added one thing to it. When I say go anywhere, I mean inside and outside as well. So how they fit all those characteristics, you know, Mario Bellini, Frank Gehry, uh, Massimo Vignelli, and Alan Heller was a friend of mine, and, and unfortunately, I've been trying to buy the company for a long time. And when he passed away, his widow and I kind of – there was nobody else that was going to take on the legacy of Alan Heller except for me. I was the only guy stupid enough to jump in. But it, it, it fits everything that I love. I get to work with um, iconic designers and the next generation of young designers to create what we think could be the next modern pieces. And we're doing it. And that, that's – you know, that's thrilling. We can storytell about the Vignellis 
And I can't talk about some of the new designers, but I can tell the next generation of designer stories. We're not open seven days a week. We don't have retail stores. Uh, we're simple. We're going to outsource as much as possible and make this kind of beautiful treasure chest of a company. Um, I, 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 I know it sounds weird, but I feel like I was, every decision that, that we've had to date has, has brought me to the position where I'm, am today. I get to work with amazing young people. My right hand is 27 years old. He's as smart as anybody and keeps me thinking. Um, you know, it's the right place to be. Amazing. So what are the, the plans, I guess, to keep Heller's heritage alive? You know, aside from the things that you just mentioned, uh, Heller's been around for a long time. There's been a lot of products. I, I noticed recently you're getting back into Hellerware I saw on the website. Yes, we're leveraging social media to tell the stories of iconic designers. We're bringing back Hellerware, which people love. Two years ago, Supreme did this in, incredible promotion with Hellerware, and then Alan never called them back. He knew who they were. So <laughs> we'll get, you know, we'll bring you know Hellerware to a whole new audience through people like Supreme. We're doing photo shoots to bring back all the uh, all the images are decades old, so we need fresh images. Um, and we're working with today's generation of designers aggressively to create um, new designs. And we'll probably also take a look back at some other iconic designers and pieces that got forgotten about that lend themselves that, that should be modern, but you know, got mishandled or the company got sold and nobody paid attention. Um, and we're bring back some of those pieces. So we'll, 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 we have a, we just have a, a, a business to business Salesforce put together across America to sell to architects and designers. Uh, we'll work on residential designers and we'll work to the consumer through places like Room and Board, Too Modern, and Arthur Our website, uh, Why Living, to get the message out there. So uh, hopefully, if you love design, it will be hard to miss. But it's, it's, you have so many different channels to go through today, which really opens up a lot of opportunity. Amazing. I'm looking forward to a long success with it. Thank you. Me too. This is going to be <laughs> yeah. a company that I stay with, you know, hopefully the rest of my life. That's great. Well, you know, again, doing modern furniture and design is is forever. So uh, that sounds like a pretty pretty darn good plan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hope it works out. All right, John. I want to finish up here with the uh, collector's gene rundown. It's a short little list of questions that we ask all of our guests at the end of every episode. You can answer them however you like, short or long form, and you can base it on any of the collections that you have, whether it's furniture, cars, watches, TVs, radios. Um, sound good? Sure. All right. What's the one that got away? A piece that you missed, you can't get over. Yeah. Mark Newson. I was in London in, I don't know, 25 years ago. And he was showing his iconic aircraft-inspired chaise. And I knew he was special. And I knew it was a thing to buy. And I think it was like $2,000. I didn't have the money um, at the time. I just joined Edelman Leather and I was broke. Um, and I should have bought that piece. I think not because it's so valuable today, but because it's so valuable, I can't get it again, right? I think one sold for a million and a half dollars or something. And, um, but you, I knew he was talented. I knew it was something different. And I should have just, you know, done anything to get that piece. Got away. Yeah, every, everything he's touched is pretty special. And he was nice. That was the other thing. Like I went to, I went to, I met him there, and he was like a sweetheart. 
and that 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 plays a big role in in uh, in that kind of thing as well. How about the on deck circle? What's next for you in your collecting? Uh, for me, it's it's watches. I don't know what it is yet, but the fun thing about the watches that I collect is that they're they're weird. So and and there are not many books about them. So you know, I'm a big 1970s Seiko collector, and that's just luck, or you know, a blue faced Breitling that's you know, no one's seen, or there's all very few, and they've probably changed ownership many times. And that that's it doesn't take up a lot of space. Um, it's not necessarily expensive, and you can do it. You can hunt for that in, uh, without leaving the house, right? It's all on the computer now. But yep. it's 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 a hunt. I mean, it is a hunt. And and it and it, then I get then I get to find, you know, uh, the time appropriate box, the original time appropriate band. And put together the full package, and, and and I love that. I love, I love buying like just something out of a drawer of a, you know. So you go to these flea markets, and the guy sell watches in a drawer, right? But then you know, and then pairing it with everything correct, all of a sudden, it's it's a collectible. Um, but that Amazing. that to me would be what's next. I think that's. I'm always looking at cars, but I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, watches can definitely be a little bit more obtainable. Totally, and you know, for two hundred dollars, you can get a beautiful. Uh, wearable timepiece that no one else has for the most part. You're not going to see, if you collect 1970 Seikos, you're not going to show up anywhere and someone else has the same watch unless right. you go to a Seiko convention or a Bulova convention or you know a, right. a tuning fork collection and it's yours. That's great. How about the unobtainable? Um, you know, I know you mentioned the, the, the Mark Newson chair lounge, you know, lounge chair, but what's another piece that you have? Maybe it's too expensive or in a museum or private collection. It's a t- it's a really tough question, uh, you know. In the Paul Newman Rolex Daytona is one of those things that's unobtainable. I can't remember what it sold for, but it sold over a million dollars. And it, you know, the one he had, right? The one his wife engraved the back something like "Take care of yourself" or "Don't get hurt" or something like that. Oh yeah, uh, drive carefully, me. Drive carefully, and and that because it has provenance. I think would be an amazing thing to own that I will not ever own, but spectacular. Um, that's just a thing. Um, yeah, that, that's another you know, one. That a, would uh, give you chills, right? If I could fit into a Goldwing Mercedes, I would have put that in the list. But I can't fit, so it breaks <laughs> the rule of usability. Furniture, besides Mark Newson, basically is affordable and obtainable compared to these other things. There's a limit to the value, so. I don't have any pieces that, that I really can't get there besides the Mark Newsom pieces. Yeah, that's it. Not much. I'm good. If if someone recreated the the Mark Newsom chair today and you know, maybe it's pricey but not nearly as as much as the the vintage ones are selling for on on the auction market, if you will, what, would you go for one? No. It was an art piece. And if anybody recreated it, it wouldn't be to like make the world better. I think it would be to cash in. You know, he, he's so, he's just so good. It's interesting that I would not, but if I, if I could have one that he touched, that he riveted, that he did the thing that I, I you know, that would be a, a no brainer. You know, uh, it's like if someone recreates an Andy Warhol, right? You don't really want right. to buy it. Not the it's same. It's not an Andy Warhol. It's someone else's thing. It's, it's because I guess, I guess I'm saying it because it was never mass produced and it never, was never really meant for mass production. It, it was built like a Gaetano Pesci, 
Like if my Gaetano Pesci piece, it has to be made by him. If someone else did it, it would be more cartoonish. It would, wouldn't really work. Understood. All right, how about the page one rewrite? If, uh, if you could collect one thing besides your current, what would it be and why? <sighs> Tough. But like uh, wooden boats, like cool wooden Chris Craft, uh, Italian, uh, all those different kinds. There's a whole genre of those, just like James Bondy, um, not really meant for salt water, gorgeous boats, all made by hand. You know, they had to maintain like crazy every year or else they just rot. If you had an unlimited budget, that would be a really, really cool place to, to collect and have a place, you know, have a place where you're on the water where you can actually use them. That would be really, really cool. I don't know if you saw, but the book company, Asseline, who makes those really nice coffee table books, they just came out with, I believe it's part of their impossible collection. So it's already oh. got a price tag of a thousand or 1500 bucks or whatever it is. But for, I think it's Riva is one of the- Yeah, Riva. Yeah, four Riva boats and the front covers like the polished wood, you know, like the uh, the back of the boats have. It's you got to check it out. It's right up your alley. Well, yeah, there's that gorgeous hotel in Venice where the uh, the outdoor dining area is all done by Riva. So it's, is it the and Gritty they have the Palace? Two, yeah, the Gritty Palace, right? With yeah, the, the Riva's out front. You, that you get that whole. I'm gonna try to buy that book. Yeah, it's it's incredible. How about the goat? Who do you look up to in the collecting world? I'm going to list, you know, a couple people. You know, the first was was Dr. Alan Friedman Keen, who taught me how to collect, who collected what he loved. It didn't matter if he found it, you know, under a dirt pile at a flea market in the middle of nowhere or at at Sotheby's. Um, he he had a passion and he knew what he wanted. And then there's a guy, Stuart Parr. He's a very interesting guy, and he's probably put together one of the best Italian motorcycle collections and now Italian cars. Uh, in the world. And he celebrates like the, the Vespa pickup truck as well as a uh, Ferrari, right? To him, it was in the same language and just as collectible. And I really have always really, really respected how he, he picked up like how cool delivery vans were from the fifties in Italy. You know, and I thought he, he has some kind of genius with his collecting. And I respect that a lot. He, he, he's for what he does. I think he's a goat. Delivery vans are are funny because, you know, like you said, it's one of those things back then they were so cool and they're so cool now. And usually a lot of things get better over time with design, but delivery vans got so much worse over time. They're coming back. Like I happen to love, I think what the Sprinter did for- The Sprinter's like, great. Yeah, they're just so cool. And now Ford makes a cool one. So yeah, like, but you know, you compare that to a 1960s Citroën delivery van like it's like <laughs> that was right. one of the most beautiful cars ever made right like yeah. you know but you look at campers why can't campers be beautiful why was the airstream so perfect why is the airstream it's like basically still being produced today unchanged um you know they're the simple things should be beautiful and as america and the world becomes more and more educated and designed um my mother always said you know it costs no much it doesn't cost anything more to make something that's ugly versus something that's beautiful and people just have to appreciate design to get back to that. And delivery vans should be celebrated. Everything you do should have an aesthetic that makes people happy. Um, it, it, it's part of sustainability, too. Making things that are beautiful makes them more sustainable in many ways. Makes you want to preserve them, keep them forever, and trade them. Uh, ugly things go away. and They go to landfills. Yeah, I have, a, I have a hard time imagining that we'll be seeing 
any of the the delivery events from the last 15, 20 years at auction one day. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm just hoping. How about the chase or the sale? Do you enjoy the hunt or the ownership more? Uh, Probably the hunt. You'll never get over like being at the 26th Street flea market, digging through a bowl of watches and finding like a boulevard that I wear to this day. The hunt finding, you know, once you, like once you learn about what makes a womb chair perfect and you find one that's, you know, worn in but not worn out that you can keep for 20 years, whatever it's going to be. Yeah, the hunt is totally more fun than uh, the ownership. Ownership's great. And then I find the exit of a product, selling of a product, sad. Uh, that's the, the least enjoyable part. Even if you've done well on it, it's, you don't, it's sad. sad. To, it's just not, you don't collect to sell, at least I don't. So that's the sad part. Yeah, it's always sad. And unfortunately, sometimes you got to move pieces to move into something else. But yeah, we've all, we've all game. done it. We've all done it. But it, it's, it's, it's the least fun part. All right, last but most important, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? Yes, I was 100% born with the collector's gene. It's real. It exists. You can't escape it. There's no <laughs> rehab, right? You can't get it. You can't go 28 days without collecting and it goes away. You're stuck with it. Um, yes, I was born with it. It's in my DNA. I can't shoot hoops. Um, that's also a gene, but I, I definitely can collect. I was born with it. There you have it. John, thank you so much again. I, I truly can't wait to chop it up more on, on all the other collections that you have. But uh, anything else that you want to toss in here before signing off? No, no, no. Just, just not that people are looking for advice, but find something you love and learn about it. And that's the thrill. That's why the hunt is more fun than the ownership is because in order to collect, you have to learn what you're collecting. And that's learning is always a thrill. And the day that you stop learning is a day pretty much you die. So collecting should be a way to, to, to stay relevant and, and, and keep your brain moving for, for your life. You're the man. Thank you so much again and looking forward to chatting again soon. Thank you so much. You made it easy. All right, that does it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Collector's Gene Radio, signing off. 